afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. The Enlightenment is um, a period of Western cultural, social, and intellectual history that uh, is usually brought up by Christians in a very negative light. It's a time, it's usually thought of, you know, identified with like the French Revolution, right? When the church in France was uh, marginalized and uh, reason was uh, divinized. But uh, it's not quite that simple. The Enlightenment has uh, been as a, it's challenged Christians, but it's also sharpened them. My guest, Dr. Joseph Stewart, knows this well. He's the author of Rethinking the Enlightenment, Faith in the Age of Reason. He's associate professor of history and fellow of Catholic studies at the University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota. His research focuses on the work of the great Christopher Dawson, uh, the cultural history of the Great War, and the Enlightenment of the 18th century. Joseph, good to have you here. Thanks. Thank you, Al. Thanks for having me. Why does the Enlightenment matter? Why don't we start with that to begin with? Sure. Well, it's the beginning of modernity. I think it's the our world, our modern world, recognizably is, is seen in the 18th century. And so if we can figure out how Christians interacted with the world around them in the 18th century, this is going to have a lot to say to us about our, our world today. Mm-hmm. Very good. Um, Let's. Uh, there is this overwhelmingly negative impression, I think, that uh, thinking uh, Christians have about the Enlightenment. Uh, you would argue that it's not all bad. Um, yeah. So let's. You have a. You have a, a, a chart. Uh, three ways in which Christians have um, responded, or reacted uh, to the Enlightenment. Why don't you set out that little schema for us? Sure. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll just preliminary by saying that you're right about this. The, the, the general impression of the 18th century is sort of a downer in, in right. Christian history, and, and a lot of people look to the medieval period as, as a great period, maybe the um, Counter-Reformation time, you know, maybe the, the era of John Paul II, uh, and rightfully so. These are incredible times of, of Church history. Um, but it, you know, in the last 20 years, if historians have made a, just a major discovery that hasn't yet really hit popular culture, certainly among Catholics, and that is this existence of the Catholic Enlightenment right. in the 18th century, and in a truly great age of Christian history when the reforms of the Council of Trent after the Reformation really bore their highest fruit, uh, in the, at least by the first half of the 1700s, in the incredible missions and art and papacy and all kinds of things that have been really forgotten about, and what I'm trying to do in this book is to kind of resurrect some of that. Yeah, very good. Um, You start out by talking about the conflict, um, the conflictual enlightenment. Um, Set that up for us. Yeah, so the story that I use in this book to, to set up the conflictual enlightenment, it has to, it has to do with the, the Carmelites of Compiègne. They're the famous martyrdom of an entire community of going, you know, walking along the streets of Paris and just singing on their way to their execution as all the people around them are just silent and watching this unfold around them. Normally they're taunting the prisoners and things and yelling and screaming, but they're all quiet. The streets of Paris are, are quiet as these Carmelites 
Carmelites are, are taken through the streets to their to their execution. And so I like to use this story to just draw us into this incredible cultural conflict that's happening by the late 1700s and within the French Revolution and the kind of um, pagan um, pantheism uh, of the time. We can talk more about that later, but um, and it's sort of uh, juxtaposition with Christianity is embodied by these incredible women uh, who heroically and joyfully, you know, went to their death singing all the while, you know, one head at a time chopped off and wow. one, you know, one less voice as, as everybody is just listening and watching this unfold. And uh, so this is the story that I want to bring readers into the, just this graphic nature of the conflict of, of that age. Why were they such a threat? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, they were accused of treason, ultimately, that, um, first of all, because they were Christian, they were, uh, by definition, um, at odds with the political religion of of the time. Mm-hmm. And and then I guess the excuse was that the Sacred Heart of Jesus, uh, an emblem of it, was found in their cells, and it was illegal to be uh, a nun at this point, and they were, so the, the Sacred Heart was found, and this was linked to uh, a major rebellion that was happening in the Vendée region of western France. The Sacred Heart was an image of the, the Catholic rebellion there. So they were, they were charged as traitors, um, but they knew that they were dying as martyrs. Wow. And they refused to leave their vocations or their mission. Yeah. Wow. That's right. Yeah. Um, so this is obvi- this is obviously an example of conflict. I mean, this is yeah. obedience unto death, as you write. Um, yeah. What do we learn, I guess, uh, from this particular example? How does that help us uh, stand and situate ourselves today? Yeah, two things there. So one is just the need for courage and and simple trust in the Holy Spirit and be, you know willing to defend our identities, defend sort of the boundaries of ourselves and of our persons uh, in a calm, dignified, even dare I say, beautiful way uh, as these women showed. Um, this is, I think, one lesson for us: just the the importance of. Uh, of fighting, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, at, for for what's right and for the way what's we true, fight. and that can be done in that's right in different ways. It can be done, but and, and then the second thing I think is just is realizing that the the conflict of this age of the 1700s was not simply one that was put on Catholics from the world outside them, but they were complicit through their own sins. And this is the later part of part one in this book, is looking at, okay, where did this conflictual enlightenment come from? Yes. And what I found was, was very quite shocking that um, many Catholic historians have not really wanted to, del- to dwell on it, it seems. And that is this kind of persecutory regime that emerged in France, mm-hmm. this kind of Catholic political correctness under the kings that said, okay, you're going to be Catholic like this. Yeah. Not like that if you're a Jansenist, not like that if you're a Jesuit, not like this or that. You're going to be this kind of Catholic, and let alone you can't even you know, be a Protestant or, or, or not. You know. So this kind of persecutory regime that was created, this violation of conscience, of freedom of religion, and of ultimately dignitati humani in, in Vatican II, all the principles that were there were, were violated by this incredibly powerful political correctness. And um, this created a lot of resentment. And um, basically, I argue that this is one of the major ingredients behind the conflictual enlightenment and hence the animus against religion in the modern world. Uh, so this, 
Catholics were themselves complicit in creating an environment in which it was relatively easy to uh, despise the influence of the Church? Yeah. Wow. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and there's many examples of some of the great figures of the time, whether Voltaire and you know Rousseau, and you know whose ideas you know really did generate this conflict over human nature and and the nature of the divine, um, and so that's that's a tragedy. But I think understanding how both of those two men um, experienced this kind of uh, persecution helps us to understand why they were so angry. And in Voltaire, in his case in particular, he, it wasn't um, so much that he was against religion. Uh, he wanted his servants to be religious, for example, otherwise they might steal from him, right? <laughs> uh, so, but, he, but he was against, most intensely, this connection between church and state, in which he saw the abuse of power by priests and bishops and others, uh, that this was a scandal to him. Uh, as, as it has been in, you know, in our own time, we've seen you know, abuse of power by churchmen, and, and what that kind of does to a person's soul, the kind of scandal that that creates, um, is, is some of the energy, at least, that's powering this conflictual alignment. Very good. Very good. Um, I mean, this is, this is, so this is kind of funny, because on the one hand, you might say we've, we bring this on ourselves, but then we're even forced, knowing that, to, we have to respond by loving our enemies, <laughs> including yeah. those who are despitefully uh, using us and persecuting us. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so the chapter, chapter 5, Brothers in Sin, is trying to get across this very idea that the, the, the Carmelites who I mentioned, you know, they're, they're dying for their fellow uh, you know, fellow Catholics, yep. um, but they're dying also for those Catholics who committed all, you know, these sins yep. that, that led to these political abuses and sort of this background here behind it. And so there's sort of a double story that's going on there. Yeah. Now, uh, yeah. the second, uh, the second uh, form, uh, model that you have here is engaging uh, the Enlightenment. And in fact, there's something called the Catholic Enlightenment. Give us a story. Yeah, so this book, Rethinking the Enlightenment, right, Faith in the Age of Reason, uh, you know, there's truly an attempt to rethink it, um, because a lot of times it's sort of this dichotomous approach where, you know, secular historians have established a narrative that, you know, religion uh, was sort of persecuted and it was faith and reason were against each other in this in this time period. And, and Christians, for the most part, have sort of accepted that paradigm. And they're like, yeah, this, these bad things did happen, and see how, how naughty the modern world is, and see how we should right. reject it, and how, you know, and sort of uh, buy into this narrative. But as I mentioned a little bit ago, there's been a, this kind of, we could say, even um, startling and disturbing discovery that Christians and, and Catholics in particular uh, engaged with the Enlightenment in a very sophisticated manner, and their story has been almost completely forgotten. Um, but thanks to uh, other historians who, over the last 20 years who've pioneered um, their books, uh, academic books and university presses, uh, it's becoming known among scholars, but it hasn't yet uh, reached a wider level of uh, of comprehension right. in, the, in the culture, and so my book is trying to translate between what the scholars have found and the, and a wider audience behind yeah. this 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 movement called the Catholic Enlightenment, which 
is we could say starting around 1700 and mm-hmm. it goes until I think we could say 1803 which we can date it so precisely because that is when Napoleon's armies spread across Europe and uh, destroyed many um, Catholic universities and also Benedictine monasteries which were hubs of this Catholic enlightenment for for 100 years who are some of the icons of this Catholic enlightenment figures we yeah, should know oh. Yeah, these wonderful people. Boy, so maybe I'll mention, first of all, Pope Benedict the Fourteenth. Okay. So he reigned from 1740 to 1758. And, you know, I just, I really think there's a reason why our, why our own dear Pope Benedict the Sixteenth um, took that name. And, and one of the reasons was because of Pope Benedict the Fifteenth, who was the forgotten great pope during the First World War. Yeah. But also I think it may have had to do with Pope Benedict the Fourteenth, who was the greatest pope in the age of the Enlightenment. Okay, hold, uh, hold it there if you would, the Joseph. Pope, in fact. Gotta take, we've got to take a break. We'll come back and pick it up at uh, Pope Benedict XIV. My guest is Dr. Joseph Stewart, Rethinking the Enlightenment, Faith in the Age of Reason, a very rich and enjoyable book. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be right back. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Joseph Stewart. Rethinking the Enlightenment, the name of his book, Faith in the Age of Reason. And we've been looking at the the Catholic approach to the Enlightenment, which can be described as conflict. Now we're looking at what might be called the Catholic Enlightenment, and I asked for some uh, figures who kind of embody this more constructive engagement uh, with the uh, Enlightenment. And uh, before the break, uh, Joseph mentioned Pope Benedict the Fourteenth, and that's where we ended the conversation. So, tell us about Benedict the Fourteenth. Sure. Well, uh, he was a uh, a scientist. Um, he was uh, someone who interacted and hung out in coffee shops with. A medical men. Uh, he went at, to the University of Bologna, which had the great uh, Academy of Sciences there, and this deeply influenced his his outlook. This kind of empirical mindset mm-hmm. of the Enlightenment. He uh, in, engaged that in, in, uh, in, a, in several different fascinating ways. One of which uh, in, continues to influence us to to this day, which was his great treatise on uh, the canonization of saints. Really? So he served as devil's advocate for about 20 years in trying to find reasons not to think someone is a saint um, yeah. and trying to bust fake miracles. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so to do that, you have to know a lot about medicine and science to know, okay, well, could this healing be considered natural, or is there room to think that it's miraculous? Mm-hmm. And so he lays out these criteria, and, and, his, and his, through interviewing and working with just the leading medical medical people of the day, and this... Uh, creates sort of different um, principles of of determining whether a miracle has taken place that influences all the way up to today, whether it's lured and the medical miracles there or into canonization uh, procedures ever since. So this is the Enlightenment spirit entering into one of the most intimate places of Catholic life, yeah, uh, which is, you know, canonization of, of saints. And this so that's, that's one, what's one area. The other major area where Well, that protects us against us superstition, today, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
And the, the other area is with the Vatican Museums. Now, the collections of the Vatican Museums date back to the Renaissance, but he helps establish this precedent of a public knowledge, uh, the opening the museums to the public. And um, so he lays the foundation, really, for what we know today as the, as the Vatican Museums, which is a great enlightenment principle of, of, of spreading knowledge widely and that we can know things, know truths, um, through material things, not just texts, like uh, like uh, the mid- medieval thinkers might hold the scholastics, but also through things like anatomy and like archaeological finds from the early church and these kinds of things. Mm. Um, this uh, this is an I mean this these are people who are, aren't are obviously not threatened easily threatened by uh, an enthusiastic embrace of the full potentialities of reason. So, yeah. were they, I mean, certainly the Catholic Church has always had a, a greater uh, appreciation for reason uh, than a lot of uh, the the more fundamentalistic Protestant approaches. But um, was he a leader in this area of em- the embrace of the use of reason and empirical method? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. He, he established... Um, chairs of, of medicine and obstetrics to, yeah. to help women giving birth within the papal states, uh, an, an anatomy uh, museum. Um, he sponsored research in, in the sciences, and he was admired by Voltaire, and he was admired by the great Enlightenment figures that you have heard of. Uh, one, one of them, Sir Horace Walpole, who was a Protestant, wrote mm-hmm. this about him, quote, beloved by papists, esteemed by Protestants, a priest without insolence or interest, a prince without favorites, a pope without nepotism, an author without vanity. In short, a man whom neither wit nor power could spoil. <laughs> so he was admired very widely, and everybody knew, knew about him. And, and one of the reasons he was admired was because he loved coffee. <laughs> Uh, because he, coffee was the drink of the Enlightenment, that it, he built a coffee house uh, connected to the, the Papal States, and so, he so, would hang out there every day, even as Pope. And coffee supplanted wine? Like, that's right, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, you, replace, you, you replace the depressant alcohol uh, with the stimulant caffeine, and that helps exp- the chemical basis of the Enlightenment suddenly becomes clear. <laughs> <laughs> that's fascinating. Um, yeah. You also mentioned... Um, this uh, Maria Agnesi's uh, Agnesi's life, I yeah. would venture to say most of us are unfamiliar with her. She was a mathematician, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Oh, she's she's one of the great figures of the Catholic Enlightenment, and and these are some stories of these incredible women who have just been completely forgotten to history, and it's just so sad. And so what I've tried to do is is bring them back through a couple of the chapters in part two. Um, Maria Agnesi, she corresponded with the, the Pope uh, Benedict, who I mentioned, wrote to her and promoted her career as he promoted the, the career of other learned learned women. Um, which was unheard of at the time, uh, and she, yeah, she was a mathematician. She was fluent in five languages. Um, she gave um, an oration at age nine in front of a public audience in Latin, uh, <laughs> defending the right of women to to study at, at a high level. Wow! And, uh, wow. Uh, she was just an incredible lady, and um, she wrote the first treatise on mathematics attributed to a woman. And she uh, also. The second half of her life really devoted herself to the poor and to running a women's hospital and, and using her fame to raise money uh, to support 
to support this hospital. And so she really was a saintly figure. And in fact, she's, she's sort of venerated in, in her local region, but she's, she's not widely known outside that. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, so Maria Agnesi is one. And um, two of these other figures, Laura Bossi was a physicist uh, whose career was, was advanced by this Pope Benedict XIV. She had eight kids. Huh. and uh, was married to a scientist, and uh, again, very saintly, very brilliant. She was one of the most famous people of the 18th century, who had been totally forgotten, but uh, she was as well-known at the time as Voltaire and others because uh, people were just amazed at how fluent she could speak in Latin and how she you know, was proving the theories of Newton, and she was engaging with you know, the cutting-edge, pun intended, anatomy uh, <laughs> of the day. Uh, so she was just an incredible lady as well. So we've seen the the approach to the Enlightenment of conflict, and now yep. you've just shown us uh, the Catholic Enlightenment, one of engagement. You've got a third model here, the, what you call the practical Enlightenment, which is one of retreat. Uh, establish mm-hmm. that for us. Sure. All right. So the conflictual Enlightenment, the stories there are happening in France. Okay, that's with the sisters, the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. Okay. With the engagement, the book shifts more toward Italy and Germany. With the Pope that I mentioned, Maria Agnesi, they're in Italy. Mm-hmm. They've got lots of German Benedictines in their monasteries who are very uh, pretty much participating in the Enlightenment. So Italy and Germany uh, in part two. Part three shifts to the English-speaking world. Okay. Because here, as in Britain and the American colonies in particular, here there's a real practical mentality. Um, this is where the first steam engine was invented around 1712, for example, uh, to, to drain mines. Um, this is where the Industrial Revolution begins to take shape. And you have these people who are, we are familiar with, like Benjamin Franklin, but, you know, who, but appear very strange from a continental European point of view. Who's, you know, Franklin is a philosopher, but he's also extremely practical, which mm-hmm. was not something most European philosophers uh, could do. He wanted, Franklin wanted to be able to fix his own his own uh, instruments when they break down and and uh, improve the, you know the quality of street paving and and lights and you know electricity and all kinds of things and um, so you have this real mechanical mindset um, this practical mindset in the English speaking world that um, really creates it's not too much to say the mo- the second most significant event in history uh, in, from a material sense which is the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. The first important event being the discovery of agriculture in about 8,000 B.C. <laughs> yeah. uh, but as far as our material lives are concerned, there's nothing more significant than those, those two events. So the modern growth economy develop, develops in the 18th century, and it's just completely changing our lives. So it's that, you know, now we have radio, and we're talking from yeah. North Dakota to Michigan, yeah. uh, because of the fruits of this incredible um, mechanical ingenious kind of a mentality of this practical enlightenment. So the argument here in this book is that this changing world, the, the way Christians um, interacted with it, one of the ways, was to kind of retreat from it. And what I mean is, is this, not a, not a military maneuver here, I mean a sort of a spiritual movement inward, that with all of this change and all of this materialism, you could say, um, a good healthy response is to say, okay, Let's come back. Let's sort of ignore a bit what's going on around us. We don't need to conflict with it. We don't need to engage it. We're just going to ignore it for a while, and we're going to build up our own lives, our own Christian way of life within our homes, in the domestic church, within our religious societies and communities and churches, and we're going to focus on just handing on the faith in this kind of 
um, more nurturing, sort of a domestic, sort of uh, synthetic way that faith relates to all these parts of our lives. And, uh, and that's this sense of retreat that I, that I mean in a third part of the book. Are they able to do that because the surrounding culture is not especially hostile? to the church or to Christian uh, principles. So, for instance, in the United States, when we talk about the U.S. Revolution, it's not like the French Revolution, which was very anti-clerical. The U.S. uh, War for Independence was... uh, much was much more um, accepting of uh, Christian, yeah. uh, you know, Christian uh, teaching. So, yeah. is that is that why they can afford to retreat and become, uh, you know, build up their own resources? Well, I think I think it's more it more has to do with the fact that in the early 1700s in the English speaking world, it was actually a really a low point in religion. Um, it was a, a decline when um, Franklin was hanging out in London, for example. He's getting into all kinds of right. trouble, and it yeah, just, he, he talks about he populated just, half of France, <laughs> right? Okay, yeah, yeah, I think he did. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. So actually, I would say that it's it's uh, it's in response to a cultural simulation uh, situation not unlike our own of economic prosperity, fra- social fragmentation, decline of religion, and now whoa, we've got to we've got to pull gotcha. back and we've got to build up the church from within. And this was so um, fruitful, because out of this retreat, in in the moments of silence, right, that's where comes our wisdom, and this is where we receive our our vocation. Out of those moments of retreat within our families and churches explodes a new evangelical Mm -hmm. energy. And and this is really the the last part of the book. It looks at how out of retreat comes new evangelization, comes mission, comes let's bring the world around us now back to to Christianity, such that in the English-speaking world, the late 1700s, in, in many ways, are more religious yeah. than the early 1700s, right, right. which really challenges our whole idea of modern secularization being a sort of a linear process. Yeah. The Wesleyan revivals transformed the moral landscape of uh, England. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Very good. So these, this right. is the period of revival. We, we retreat, but from that comes renewal, revival, uh, and reform. Right. Very good. Um, right. So... Tell me, we've only got about 60 seconds left here. Um, what would you like to leave our listeners with regarding the practicality of your book, Rethinking the Enlightenment? Sure, yeah. So these strategies that we've we've been able to talk about, conflict, engagement, and retreat, each one has strengths and weaknesses to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he, and all of us are attracted maybe to different, maybe one of them or maybe two of them, um, but there are different weaknesses, and and uh, and we could talk if we had more time. We could talk about what those weaknesses are, but but they're there. And I think if they get isolated from each other, say I'm just going to want to conflict with the world around me, or I'm just going to sort of engage with a completely open mind all the time, or I'm going to just retreat into myself and in our own little home, and we're just going to live this little sectarian existence. Uh, those are those are weaknesses, and and my book is arguing that we need to bring all of them together, and that when the kingdom of God and different parts of the kingdom of God are pursuing these different strategies simultaneously. Then we have the recipe for okay. a strong and sophisticated Christianity thank like you. developed in the Joseph, 18th century. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you.